The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let us turn to the Lord now in prayer. Let us bow our hearts together. Our great Lord, the first and the last, the true and the living God, we come today to your house just as those women did long ago. For we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And while we do not have an angel this morning as they did to proclaim to us the good news of the resurrection of Jesus, nevertheless, we have your word, which speaks to us as if it was said for the first time. And we have your angels, the praise team, those who lead worship, and Pastor Greg, who will preach in a moment to tell us again of the same message that those women heard long ago. Oh, Father, today, our prayer is that we might know the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are those of us this morning, Father, who have come here just like those women, alarmed, worried, anxious about the future. And we pray today that they might hear that word of the angel, do not be alarmed. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has made us to have peace with God. Oh, may the peace of God be in our hearts today. Father, there are those who are here this morning feeling weak, not sure if they've got the strength to do what you've called them to do, to face that challenge to overcome that barrier. And we pray today that they would focus on the empty tomb, that Christ is not there, He is risen, and that they might know that in Christ they can do all things that strengthen them. Our Father, today there are those of us in this room who are just plain stuck. We don't, we don't know which way to go, and we've been stuck We're afraid to go backward, and we're afraid to go forward. And so things just continue the way they are. Our Father, 
Help us to see that Jesus, like long ago, is not here. He's gone before us. He's gone before us to the Galilees of our life, to those places that we're afraid to go, to face those people and events that we are concerned to face. He goes before us. Oh, may you give us strength to follow him today. And, Father, there are those of us here this morning who are in darkness and for whom life looks very pessimistic looking down the corridors of the future. Some of us may even be in despair. But our Lord is not here. He is in heaven. And through him we live. We have died with him in his crucifixion, and we live with him in his resurrection. And he will come again. He makes intercession for us this very day at the throne of grace. And he will return to receive us to himself. Father, strengthen us, encourage us, calm us today with these words. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. I would to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read verse 3 and then verses 18 through 21. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That was verse 13. Jump down to verse 18 knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we bow before you. We honor you as our crucified, buried, and risen Savior. We recognize that even now as we worship you, intercede on our behalf. We bow ourselves before you, and we recognize that you are the one true source for enduring hope. And your resurrection is evidence of that. Open up your word to us. Draw us to yourself, we pray. For your glory and your glory alone. Amen. I ask you a question this morning. Where do you look to find hope? When life gets rough, when life is hard, when the circumstances around you begin to, to swirl, when, when things aren't going your way, when relationships fall apart, when you get the 
the notice at work that you no longer are employed. When you go to the doctor and get the report that you dreaded that it's cancer or that some other dreaded thing. When the policeman knocks on the door and delivers a report that you wish wasn't being delivered to you. Where do you find hope? How do you, how do you find a hope that sustains you when life is hard? When life is rough? When the circumstances around you don't seem hopeful? What is it that, that keeps you going? What is it that gets you up every morning that, that keeps you sort of moving through life? What is the, the rock that you latch on to when life comes unglued around you? People today are struggling to find hope. It's a very rare commodity. I was confronted with the stark reality of this last summer as I stood in a Coast Guard-based chapel, actually it was a Navy-based chapel, and looked out over a congregation of Coast Guardsmen and had the privilege of opening God's Word and trying to help them see hope in the midst of a circumstance that was horrific, one of their brothers in battle. A young man, a high achiever, a man with a a wife and children, a man with his whole life stretched out in front of him, had descended so deeply into hopelessness that he was willing to drive his car into a remote place and pull out a gun and pull the trigger and end it all. His present circumstances seemed so painful and the future seemed so bleak. He had absolutely no hope that life could ever be better. And he decided it was better to die than to live. Just one month month ago, a little over that, I had the privilege of being able to spend a month on a U.S. destroyer, the USS Gravely, out to sea with... 30 United States Navy sailors conducted worship services on Sunday and Bible studies. But the most, the thing that I did most in that month with those sailors was private counseling. Hours and hours and hours of talking to young men and young women who were serving our country about their lives. And one of the most consistent themes that I saw throughout those many, many hours of conversations was a theme of hopelessness. Young ladies, young men, with their whole lives stretched before them, wrestling with the question, is there any reason for me to live? Is there any reason for me not to walk to the back of this ship and jump in the water and just drown? Chaplain, what reason do I have to stay alive? Oh, around that question is all sorts of circumstances. They tell me about their families and how things are chaotic. They tell me about their financial position in life, and they tell me how there's chaos in in that part of their life. They talk to me about personal struggles that they deal with in the confines of their own heart and their own mind, and there's chaos going on there. 
And they look toward the future and they just begin to believe that it couldn't possibly ever get better. And no hope. I remember very vividly looking into the eyes of another young man. And tears starting to form and come down his cheeks. He said to me, last night I found a remote place on this ship and I found a rope and I formed it in the shape of a noose and I put it around my neck just to see what it feels like. Thank God that he didn't follow through with that plan. The reality of hopelessness is pervasive all around us. If it hasn't touched into your heart, into your life recently, then you can praise God for that. But I can assure you that it's touching the lives of people around you. And they're wondering those same questions. What reason do I have to stay alive? What hope do I have for the future? And maybe you're here this morning and there's chaos going on in some venue of your life or multiple venues of your life and you're asking the same question. You would be in great company in our culture. The evidence is in. People are discouraged. They're depressed. They're beaten down. They're hopeless. In the past 15 years, the number of people seeking treatment for depression in the U.S. has doubled. Now well over 30 million people a year. Reuters reports one in five Americans report being depressed or unhappy, report high levels of stress, anxiety, and sadness. HBO reports that in the U.S. there's a suicide every 13 minutes. Just for some scope of this issue, in the year 2013, just five years ago, suicide took well, well over 41,000 Americans from us. It was the tenth leading cause of death. Among those aged 15 to 24, it was the third leading cause of death. And if you want to look at the statistics worldwide, you can see 800,000 people per year. That's one every 40 seconds decides that there's no hope and life is not worth living. God's Word is not naive to the reality that people are desperately looking for hope and having a hard time finding it. If you read the book of Job, you find that a man in the midst of deep suffering wondered aloud, even a godly man wondered aloud, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Could death possibly be better? Solomon, one of the the wisest men who ever lived, who had the ability to pursue everything the world has to offer to find hope. And he found at the end of every pursuit that it's all just vanity. It's just a waste of time and it cannot deliver to me hope. See, the problem that we have around us is there's a prevailing worldview. And that prevailing worldview is essentially built on a few basic truths. It begins with the idea that there is no God. There is no God. Even if there is a God, He's distant, He's uninvolved, He's ambivalent to what's going on down here. But there is no God. Built upon that foundation is the idea that we've come from nowhere. We're just simply the next in the long line of creatures that have evolved from some sort of cosmic slime. There have been many that have gone before us. There are going to be many who come after us. We're just the result of a bunch of random biological events. So there isn't a God And we, individually, have just come out of nowhere. And furthermore, our lives are just random. 
There's no guiding hand that's controlling anything down here. We, we have no particular purpose. We have no particular value. Our circumstances that we experience are just random circumstances, events that are random. There's nobody that's in control of all this. Our only hope in this life is to achieve something significant enough in the few short years that we have to live so that somebody might remember us after we die. And finally, we're going nowhere. And I mean by that after this life, because there isn't anything after this life. This is all there is. There's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no eternal destiny. You live, you die, and that's it. That's the prevailing worldview around us. And when that becomes the lens through which you see the world, and the lens through which you evaluate your experiences, and the lens through which you look into the future to decide if life is worth living, it is no surprise, or it should be no surprise to us, that people conclude that there isn't any hope to be found. If you're here this morning and you're struggling to find hope, you're struggling to sustain hope, I I, I want to tell you directly that what you see on the screen in front of you right now is an absolute lie from Satan. It is not true. Peter, in the New Testament book of 1 Peter, is going to lay out for us the truth. And the truth is that there is great news and there is great hope to be found for you. And there is great hope to be found for me. There is a place where we can anchor true hope. There is a way to live even through the worst of circumstances with an abiding hope for the future. The text that we've read in 1 Peter chapter 1 is all about that. Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ, one of his inner circle of twelve. And he's writing this book, 1 Peter, to believers who are suffering deeply. Who are suffering great pain and great persecution. And who just might be tempted to look into the future and say, what's going on here? Is there any hope that anything's going to get better? And so Peter writes to them this letter, 1 Peter. And he launches right out in the very beginning of the letter. And in the first, I don't know, first section of this book, he talks about hope. At least four times. Why do you think Peter writes about hope that many times at the very beginning of his letter? He writes about it because he knows the people to whom he's writing are struggling to find it and are struggling to sustain it. And he wants to shore them up and remind them where true hope comes from. And so he launches right out in verse 3 and he gives them the source of true hope. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's good news part one. And He lays it out right there. It is this. There is a God and He's merciful. That's the first piece of good news that Peter wants to remind his suffering brothers and sisters about. There is a God. Despite what the world around you might say, there is a God. And not only is there a God, but He is a merciful God. A God of mercy. A God who is merciful to those who question. A God who is merciful to those who doubt. A God who is merciful to those who struggle to find hope and to believe. 
the first thing Peter wants to do in addressing people who are struggling to find hope is to, is to sort of put his fingers on their chin and to lift their gaze up from their circumstances and get their eyes on the one who supplies hope. And so he says, look to God. He's there and he's merciful. The second thing that's a part of the good news that Peter launches right at the beginning in this first section is this. He says, not only is there a God, and not only is He merciful, but true hope is anchored in a right relationship with Him. You want to find hope that will secure your life? You want to find hope that will sustain you through the hard times? It comes not through the circumstances of your life being right. It comes... Through a right relationship with the one who made you, who created you, the God who is there and the God who is merciful. Peter is saying, listen, we need to understand our hope is not anchored in our circumstances. It is anchored in God and having a right relationship with him. He's caused you to be born again to a living hope. He has done this. It comes from him. We're going to talk about hope. We need to get a good biblical definition of exactly what hope is. Now, we use the word hope in all sorts of ways, right? I hope this sermon won't be too long on Easter Sunday because there are donuts and coffee waiting after this. And we've got other things to do today. I hope work is going to be better next week than it was last week because last week it stunk. I hope I have enough money when I retire to be able to live and not have to continue to work I hope my team wins the NCAA championship this weekend there's always some level of uncertainty in the way we use the word hope I hope something will happen and it may or it may not when the Bible talks about hope it's talking about a different kind of hope the word that the the biblical writers use to talk about hope is a word that contains within it no uncertainty So when Peter says that he, meaning God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope, he's talking about a hope that is certain, that is sure. It's a firm and confident assurance in the promises of God for the future. He says God provides a hope that is not uncertain. He provides us an anchor by which we can lock our lives down and we can know for certain that it's going to go the way that he's told us it's going to go. Because it's a sure and steady and certain hope. It's not a a sort of crossing our fingers and hoping God might come through. It's a pressing forward in life, even when life is hard, with a full assurance and a firm confidence that God will see me through. And then at the end of the day, He's got my good on His radar. We use the word hope and faith sometimes interchangeably in, in... sort of the Christian world. And in essence, they're sort of the same thing, but there is one difference. They both involve trusting God. But the distinction between faith and hope is simply this, that faith is trusting God for my needs in the present. It is a a firm assurance in the present that God will come through for me. Hope is a trusting God and a firm assurance for the future. Faith says that whatever's going on around me right this moment, I have faith that God will help me in the moment. Hope says I'm looking toward the future and I trust and have a firm confidence that whatever comes my way, God is going to get me to the end safely and securely. Peter says that kind of a hope is available to every human being. 
That kind of a firm assurance that God is there and that He is with us and that He will help us and that He will ultimately give meaning and value to our lives and that He will get us to the end safely and securely is available to us all. But it's not automatic. He says there's a way that we get this hope. It's not something that we just sort of work up within us. It's not something that we just sort of dig our heels in and we work hard to to, to secure for ourselves. He says, you have been born again to a living hope. He says, in order for you to gain this hope, a transformation has to take place. You have to die to the way that you have up to this point lived your life. And you have to be reborn to a new kind of life. Up to this point in life, you have lived for yourself and you have lived for your own pleasure. You have been the captain of your own ship. You have chased after your own pleasures and everything the world has to offer. And you sought to find hope in your work and in your relationships and in your marriage and in your children and in your bank account and in your retirement account and in your self-esteem and in the power that you can accumulate over other people and in your achievements and in your beauty and all these things and you find yourself hopeless, you need to die to that pursuit and you have to be born again to live a new way. You have to be born again to this living hope. There is true hope, but you have to be born again to it. John had a conversation with a man named, excuse me, Jesus had a conversation with a man named Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3. And they were talking about this very thing. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There is no hope apart from being born again was Jesus' message to Nicodemus. And it's His message to us. What is this being born again? How is one born again? Well, that brings us to good news part three. There is a God and He's merciful. There is a God and He's merciful. Our only true hope is anchored in a right relationship with Him. But part three of that, Peter tells us, is He sent His Son to die for our hope. He sent His Son to die for our hope. Look at how Peter lays this out in verses 18 through 21. Knowing this, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory, so that, back to the beginning, your faith and your hope could be found in Him. God sent His Son to die for your hope and for my hope. True hope comes from God, and it comes to us through Jesus. True hope comes from God. It comes to us through Jesus. That's Peter's argument. And that's the truth of Scripture from front to back. If there is a God and He's merciful, and if true hope is anchored in a right relationship with Him, then all of us have a very real problem. And that very real problem is we don't come into this world in a right relationship with Him. The Bible tells us that we come into this world sinners, separated from Him. The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament in Isaiah 59 said it to his 
audience in his day this way. He said, listen, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save you, nor is his ear too deaf to hear you call. But it's your sins that have cut you off from him. Because your sins, because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen to you anymore. Your hands are the hands of murderers. Your, fil- your fingers are filthy with sin. Your lips are full of lies and your mouth spews corruption. Isaiah is saying, look, God is there and he's powerful and he can save you and he can anchor hope in your life. But he's not the problem. You're the problem. The problem is you need to be in right relationship with him. But you can't because you have sins that have cut you off from him. You have chosen to rebel against Him, to live life your own way, to say, God, I understand who you are, but I'm not going to do things your way. I'm going to do things my way. And you've charted your own path, and you have rebelled against the one who made you, and because of that, you are cut off from Him. We live in a world full of people who are utterly hopeless, and the primary reason that they are utterly hopeless is because their sins have cut them off from God. The only place that you can find true hope is in a right relationship with the one who made us. It can't be found anywhere else. And we come into this world cut off from him. And so Peter, recognizing this issue, he points his readers or his listeners to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he reminds them that that problem that all of us come into this world have, having sins that cut us off from Jesus, has been dealt with because God sent Jesus to pay the price for our sins, that we might be reconciled to our Heavenly Father and find in Him true hope. He says it this way. He says, you've been ransomed. You've been ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus. Your sins separated you from God. Your sins that all of you are guilty of because all have fallen short of the glory of God and sin. And the wages of those sin is an eternal separation from God. But Jesus has come and He has ransomed you. He has paid the wage of your sin that you might be reconciled to your Heavenly Father by placing your faith and trust in Him. You've been ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus. God sent His Son. He sent His Son to anchor our hope. The way Peter lays it out is, beginning in verse 20, he talks about Jesus. He says he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Foreknown before the foundation of the world. That word foreknown just simply means planned before. In other words, that from the very beginning, God had a plan to anchor your hope and mine. Before you and I ever lived, there was a plan in place. Before you and I ever sinned, there was a plan in place. Before you and I ever rebelled against our Creator, He had already planned a way to be reconciled to us. And it was through His Son that He would send Jesus, foreknown before the foundation of the world. God was not not shocked off of His throne when His creatures rebelled against Him as though some unforeseen thing had taken place and a plan needed to be made all of a sudden. God understood that with the gift of of human choice, there comes the opportunity to rebel and to reject Him and to sin. And so God planned for that. He planned to send His Son to die for the rebellion He knew we would execute. But not only was he foreknown, he says he was made manifest in these last times. The word manifest, it just simply means made clear. 
the plan that God had from all eternity to send His Son made, was made manifest in these last times. How was it made manifest, you say? Well, Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. <clears throat> What does it mean when Peter says that he was made manifest in these last times? He's just talking about the life of Jesus, that God sent his only begotten son. That he sent him to be born of a virgin, Mary, in Luke chapter 1. We remember the Christmas story. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus was made manifest when He was born, when He left, when He stepped out of His heavenly glory and was born into human experience as a baby in Mary's arms. That was the physical reality, but John gives us the spiritual reality. In John chapter 1, verse 14, he says it was in that moment that the Word, the eternal Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. He was made manifest when He was born. He was made manifest in the sense that He lived a perfect life before humanity. Peter describes Him as as like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. He's referring to Jesus' life. His life was a life of utter perfection. It was a life where there was no spot or blemish. A life without sin in any way, shape, form, or fashion. And He lived His life publicly so everybody could have seen that. A perfectly righteous life without sin. And because he was without sin, he could be for us the perfect Lamb of God. You know, that language takes us back to the Old Testament sacrificial system when literal lambs were sacrificed and their blood spilt on account of the people's sins on a regular basis. And Peter is saying of Jesus that Jesus is the perfect and final sacrificial Lamb. And because he lived a perfect, spotless life without any sin of his own, he could be sacrificed, his blood could be shed, and it could cover the sins of those who actually sinned. He could, by his blood, pay the wages of death for other people. In fact, for all who would place their trust in him. He lived a perfect life. He lived a perfect life so that he could die and I could place my trust in him and my sins could be charged to his bank account and his perfect righteousness could be charged to mine. He lived a perfect life. But Peter tells us he was crucified and he was buried. Peter delivered this same message in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, when he said this, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. We remember the story. Jesus arrested. Jesus put on a, a mock trial. Convicted of crimes that he never committed lied about, abused, spit upon, physically brutalized, a crown of thorns on his head, a spear in his side, a whip to his back, and ultimately nails through his hands and feet. Lifted up on a cross. 
enduring the wrath of God, coming at Him through the wrath of man, physically. And the wrath of God coming at Him spiritually, feeling this separation that we earned and paying the price that we deserved to pay. Christ died for our sins and was buried. But Peter says the story doesn't end there. He says God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. I said God raised him from the dead. Amen. Thank you. Somebody to raise you from the dead. I think God raised him from the dead, people. That's why we're here. Christ's resurrection is unmistakable proof that God accepted His price for our sins. It's unmistakable proof that death isn't the final answer. That there is hope beyond a grave. That there is hope beyond this life. That there is hope beyond our circumstances. That there is hope beyond your marriage. That there is hope beyond your financial chaos. That there is hope beyond the job that isn't working out. That there is hope beyond your cancer diagnosis. That there is hope beyond the great loss that you've just suffered. The resurrection of Jesus tells us that there is a hope beyond anything that this world can throw at us because Christ has entered the tomb and He has come out the other side and He has said for us, that is not the end. The end is with me. And the end is perfection. And the end is glory. And the end is pleasure forevermore in my presence. He's a resurrected Christ. That's where hope belongs. The resurrection is the key to everything. It's the climax of the good news of the story of Jesus. Christ was crucified, He was buried, and He was raised. That's the message of the Gospel. That's the message of the New Testament. It is the message that took Peter, after the burial of Jesus, from being a depressed, discouraged, hopeless man to becoming a powerful apostle for the Lord Jesus Christ who literally changed the world. You know what changed Peter? A resurrected Jesus. A resurrected Jesus changed everything. It took him from hopelessness, a a, a position of abandoning the ministry and leaving it all behind and turned him into an apostle who changed the world. All because of Jesus being raised. The resurrection changes everything. And that Jesus who, was, who died, who was crucified, who was buried, and who was raised is now exalted, Peter says, and God gave him glory. just simply means that after his resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and it is there that he lives and moves and has his being, and he intercedes on our behalf, and he rules all things, and he awaits the right moment for the Father to send him to come get us and take us to be with him. He reigns and He lives. And that's why Peter says that you as believers have a living hope. We have a living hope because we serve a living Savior. Jesus who's raised from the dead. And why did He do all of this? Why did He do all of these things? In verse 20 and 21, Peter says, He did them for your sake. He did them for your sake so that your faith and your hope could be in God. It's remarkable. 
that God knew the kind of hopelessness that you and I would face in our lives. That He knew the circumstances that that we would experience before we ever experienced them, before we even lived them. And He had made a plan for our hope. And that hope was in sending His Son to die, that we might confess our sin, believe upon Him, submit ourselves to Him, and trust our lives to Him. That He might raise us to a new life that He might reconcile us to our Heavenly Father, that we might have a living hope and a living Savior who died for us. He did it for you, and He did it for me, and He did it for our hope. There is a God, and He's merciful. The only true hope that you'll ever find in your life will come in being in a right relationship with Him. And the only way to be in a right relationship with Him is to submit your life to His Son, whom He sent to die that you might have hope. A hope that lives. A hope that lives through every circumstance. A hope that lives through every pain. A hope that lives through every problem. A hope that lives through every single disappointment in your life. A hope that is able to reside in your heart so that even when life all around you is chaotic, you're able to look up and say, you know what, my life stinks and it's painful. And even through tears, I have hope because God will make this all right one day if I hope in Him. That's true hope. You say, well, how do I get it? The Peter who wrote this stood sometime before he wrote this, before a crowd And he preached the first Christian sermon ever to a group of people who had gathered. And he explained to them the things that we've just talked about. That Jesus is the Son of God. And he said to that group, He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. He is the Christ. And you crucified Him. You crucified Him. It was your sins that nailed Him to the cross. He died because of you. And He died for you. And that crowd on that day was broken, Acts chapter 2 tells us, to the core. And they said to Peter, What shall we do? What can a person who's hopeless do? What can a person who recognizes their sin and realizes the huge gap between their life experience and their God. What can that person do? What can that person do who looks in the mirror and understands that they stand guilty before the only one who can give them hope? That they stand condemned on the basis of their own behavior and their own choices and their own actions? What can we do? And Peter said these words. He said, repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter says it's quite simple. You can't earn it. You can't do anything to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and get out of it. Here's what you need to do. You need to repent. And the word repent simply is, has two facets to it. It's a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. It's a change of mind that says, you know what? I'm no longer going to live the way I've been living. I'm going to change my pursuit. And I'm going to live for the one who made me. It's, it's walking this way and chasing my own pursuits and my own pleasures and the things of the world. It's making a decision to change my mind and to change my direction. And to walk toward the one who can give me true hope. 
It's a brokenness inside that says, God, I know I'm guilty. I know I'm guilty. I know my sin has separated me from you because I feel it inside. And I know that I can't do anything to rectify that. That my only hope is in your son dying in my place that I might live. And so I turn from my pursuit and I turn toward you. I submit my life to you. On the basis of the blood of your son, forgive me and save my soul. The Bible tells us if any man and any woman does that, any man, any woman does that, they will instantly receive forgiveness of their sin. The slate is wiped clean. Every sin washed away. And a new life is given. A new way of living, a new way of thinking, and a new hope is birthed in the heart. Because the Spirit of God takes up residence inside and becomes for us one who will never leave us and forsake us and one who will help us through every circumstance of our lives. That is where hope comes from. From repenting and entrusting our lives to the Lord Jesus. And then making a public proclamation of that is a first act of obedience. Be baptized, Peter tells them. You repent, have that change of mind and that change of direction. Submit yourself to the Lord Jesus that He might save you. And then make public declaration of that for all the world to see. That you've changed teams. No longer am I living for myself, but I'm living for Christ. And I want everyone to know it. Repentance is not just saying I'm sorry. It's not just words. It's a genuine brokenness on the inside. I read a story this week that was an older story. It was about Pete Rose, the great baseball player. Do you remember him? You remember Pete Rose? Fantastic baseball player. Spanned for life from baseball um, because it was exposed that he had been gambling while a player and gambling while a coach, betting sometimes for and sometimes against his team. In a recent interview, his attorney said this, It's undisputed Pete broke the cardinal rule of baseball, but he's a changed man. He's a repentant man. He's a man whose life is under control. He lives in an orderly, I would say boring, disciplined life. But then when Pete Rose was interviewed, here's what he says. Yeah, I lied, but I'm just not built to act all sorry or guilty about it. Pete Rose, do you continue to gamble? Well, yes, I continue to gamble. I worked hard my whole life. I'm 74 years old. That's the way I get my enjoyment. I'm not a stock market guy or a DraftKings guy. I don't do all that stuff. But, but I, you know, I bet on a football game. I go home and watch it. That's how I get my enjoyment. I probably shouldn't, but you have to live your life. There was a time when I was out of control gambling, but I worked hard at it the last several, several, several years, and I have it under wraps. I'm in control in my life. I'm a recreational gambler now. Everything I do is legal. No more behind-the-scenes stuff. All I can try to do is be a better person every day. And eventually they'll want me back. That's not repentance, despite what an attorney says. Repentance isn't saying, yeah, you know, I 
I messed up, but, you know, I'm not going to be all guilty about that. Yeah, you know, I rebelled against God, and yeah, I still do, but I've got it under control now. I'm just a little bit better than I was before. That's lying to yourself. That's not repentance. Pete Rose thinks he can manage his sin and come out on top. I read another article this week. It said this, famed snake whisperer dies after cobra bite. And I thought there's some irony in that headline, isn't it? Famed cobra whisperer, a person who thinks that they can play with cobras and whisper to them and eventually cheat death, is a fool. And now he's a dead fool. And let me tell you something. If you think you can do that with your sin, it will kill you just the same. You think you can play around with your sin? That you can tame it? That you can whisper to it? That you can control it? And somehow add God onto your life and it's all going to wash out in the end and be okay and you're going to live? It's just as foolish as the snake whisperer. Your sin will bite you and it will kill you. You cannot control it. Your only hope is to submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ as a broken woman, a broken man, who confesses, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I rebelled against you. I'm sorry I have sinned against you. I am sorry I have rebelled and run away from you. And I know my only hope is to abandon my way of living and to submit to you. Please forgive my sin. Take control of my life and give me hope. If you'll do that this morning, He'll do that for you. I ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. It's Easter Sunday and I know the right thing is to just go to church in a southern culture. And so many a have gathered because we love the resurrection of Christ and we love to celebrate it and we love to worship Him and others have come out of obligation and some have come for various other reasons. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never come to that place where you've repented of your sin and entrusted your life to Him, that you've abandoned all pursuit of self-righteousness and confessed your sin and pleaded for Him to save your soul. Right now is the appointed time of salvation for you. Right now where you are, I plead with you, I beg with you, I beg you, right now, confess your sin to Jesus. Admit that you've rebelled against Him. Confess that you have no hope apart from Him and ask Him to forgive your sin and to become your Lord and Savior. That the message of Easter would not be just a message that's external to you, that it would become personal to you right now that He would forgive your sins and wipe the slate clean and give you a place to anchor your hope. You must do that right now. There's not a guarantee of tomorrow or this afternoon, right this moment. Lord Jesus, there are those in this place who need to receive You. They need to see You as crucified, buried, and raised again and the only true source of hope for them. And I pray in these moments, Lord, that you would open up eyes of people to their sin and their rebellion and their separation from you. And you would draw them to yourself. That they would run to you. And they would cry out to you to forgive them and to give them new life. Lord, I pray that you would do that work and that they would find new life in you right this very moment. For we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.